0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you. uh, We've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well of the globe relative unprecedented freedom from threat or harm. Uh, We pray that as we ingest your word, as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we seek to uh, apply the wisdom of Proverbs, that we do so knowing that God has given this to us so that in our position of immense spiritual prosperity, we share with others. Give us a heart this 4th of July, not just of gratitude for our nation, but of a zeal for other nations, a zeal for every tongue, tribe, and nation whom Christ desires to call converts out of. And may we as the American church seek to not become arrogant in what we have, but to humbly put ourselves to the task of glorifying God and loving others through the glorious gospel that is in Jesus Christ. And as we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So we are continuing uh, our series through the book of Proverbs. We started last time we were in here, um, kind of the third movement of Proverbs, looking at Solomon's 30 sayings of the wise. If you haven't yet opened up your Bibles, we're going to be in Proverbs 22 today. But I actually want to start all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, the first few pages of Scripture. And in Genesis 4, we get a unique glimpse into a battle which has been waging war in our souls ever since this event. And in this scene, we see two brothers, each with a different relationship and understanding of God, of their labor, and of each other. Abel, brother number one, was a shepherd. Cain, brother number two, was a farmer and those were their jobs. That was how each of them gained a livelihood in the world they were living in. But there came a point in the narrative of scripture where the hope each brother had in their labor and what they thought that hope could purchase was on stunning display. And we see this contrast when both men took portions of what they earned and offered it to the Lord as a sacrifice. And Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives us a little background. He says, Abel offered the best of the best. He went and got the fat of the firstborn. He got all those burnt ends that no one can actually get from Notorious P.I.G. because they sell out immediately. He brought the best of the best and offered it to the Lord. Cain also went into his storehouses of what he had earned in the field. And he too offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And yet God saw the offering of Abel, and was pleased. And then Moses said, God saw the offering of Cain, and he did not regard his sacrifice. So what was the difference? Well, if we read Genesis 4 carefully, we see that Abel saw all of his labor and all of the fruits it produced as a gift from God that he was to steward. And so when it came to giving back to God the best of his produce, he realized it was all God's gift to him anyway, and it cost him nothing. He risked nothing, giving that back to the Lord. On the other hand, Cain saw all of the labor and all of the reward, the fruit of it, as a currency. A currency that he had a limited amount of, which he then had to kind of appropriate and give allocate in order to assure everything. This was his livelihood from this well of produce and kale. He had to satisfy God and he had to satisfy himself and he had to have a working relationship with everyone around him. And that led him to hold tightly to everything that he earned. Abel saw his labor and its fruit as something to be freely given in submission to the Lord. Cain saw his labor as something he had to use to purchase his own standing and satisfaction before God and before others. And we see the problem of these two worldviews in the story that follows. Cain withheld the best of his fruits from God because he probably thought that he could pay off God with a portion of his fruit and then satisfy himself with the other portion. But what he found is when that becomes your livelihood, when that's the way you view the world, that you can satisfy yourself, it doesn't work. He tried it and he was dissatisfied. He was dissatisfied precisely because he did not have the pleasure of God. And so Cain was convicted that he was doing something wrong, that something was amiss with how he viewed his labor. And if that happens to us, we should have wonderful opportunity to repent and go to God. But Cain instead doubled down. And he looked at how God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. And so he made a bargain in his own mind. He said, if Abel's produce, if what he gains is a threat to what I gain, then I will take up in violence and kill my brother and therefore solve the problem that comes from me trying to hold onto what God himself can only give And why do I lead with this story? Because here we see how our view of our labor and what we earn has a direct effect on how we view and what we think about God and how we are willing to treat others around us. Since Genesis chapter 4, our world has been trying to solve the error of Cain. All you have to do is watch an infomercial, if those still exist, or get on Facebook and watch a video or Instagram ad and you see people saying, follow my rise and grind mentality for business and you can become the self-made entrepreneur you have always wanted and finally purchase for yourself the relief, the freedom, the sexual prowess, the satisfaction and the luxury that Cain failed to get. Here it is. If only you can labor this way. And our passage today in the book of Proverbs leans in to this temptation. It leans in to our desire to gain. And it looks at more than simply our work. Instead, Solomon is after how far you are willing to go to gain money or influence or social capital or whatever you think you can earn with your success here in this world. And what you're willing to do towards those ends of what you gain and what you get inevitably shapes not only what you do for work, but how you do it and what you hope to get out of it. We live in a world where the economic climate coming out of the pandemic is, is changing and it's new. There's transformation. There are many students and young adults in here where summer, are like, this is the season of harvest. School's coming. This is when you're working, trying to make the most money as quickly as you can. The rest of us probably have jobs or are trying to get jobs. And the point is that this is a universal need that all of us has that Solomon wants to bring you a level of wisdom that is of gospel understanding and faith in God that helps you understand why you work, how you work, and what you get from your work. And our big point today is this. It is how and why we work is directly related to our hope in God. How and why we work is directly related to our hope in God. In other words, what you think about what your labor can purchase, what it is you earn, and the currency that gives you, it shapes the way you view yourself, God, and those around you. We're going to see this in a number of practical ways today. We're going to split our text up into two portions. First, in Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 28, we're going to see four do not statements, From Solomon. And in this passage, we're going to see four methods of unprofitable gain. If you want profitable gain, do not do these things. But then in verse 29, we're going to see the good news of faithful gain. That is gain that relies on the Lord. I'm going to read our whole text for us once more, and then we're going to circle back to our first point. So this is Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 29. Do not rob the poor because he's poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So here when it comes to kind of this economic language, it's actually gonna continue a little bit further into chapter 23. Solomon opens up with four prohibitions, four warnings of what to avoid when it comes to gain and currency. And our first point today is just this, to stop and look at these four methods of unprofitable gain. Solomon here says four times, don't do these things. Each of them have an economic sense that translates to both your heart internally and probably to the workplace or marketplace externally. And he begins with what seems obvious in verse 22 and kind of transitions to what might seem really obscure to us in verse 28. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But we also see is in his first three warnings, Solomon gives us a reason why we should avoid those things. And that in itself is a wonderful grace we ought not to blow past. God is the creator of all things. To turn to God's wisdom is to actually turn under God's authority. To realize that God is God and knows what's best is to say, I am not God and I am in need of counsel. And God is the uncreated creator. He is the one who existed forever and always in triune perfection as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means God has every right to say, do this because I said so. And just like us with our kids, there might be times where God the Father calls us to obey without having complete understanding, and we have to trust him. And yet here we see this wonderful glimpse into the heart of God the Father where here we see God telling us why we should obey him. And we see that all of his wisdom, all of his authority, all of his affection, all of his intention in curbing our hearts is actually to benefit us, to keep us from harm, to lead us in the path of wisdom of what is good, to lead us what we saw earlier in Proverbs on the road that leads to righteousness. This is God's goodness to us even when it comes in the form of do not. It is for our good. And so in brief, we're gonna turn to each of these do not commands and see God's kindness. And in verse 22, we see the first method of unprofitable gain, and that's this. Don't profit off the vulnerable, for God will defend them. Don't profit off the vulnerable, for God will defend them. Verse 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Now, for most of us in here, here we are as good church people, even on 4th of July Sunday, sitting in church, unless you're kind of super villainy, most of us don't wake up with an immense desire to rob and to afflict. We see that as being out of hand bad, not good, generally to be avoided. But here, Solomon invites us to examine places where you might be prone intentionally or even unintentionally of profiting off the exploitation of those who have no recourse, no defense in two specific places. That is first, in the first part of 22, those who have no financial resources, that is those who are poor. And then secondly, in the second part of verse 22, that is those who have no voice, in the public court system, that is at the gates, the afflicted at the gates. And so Solomon's warning here is both an economic and a legal warning. He has concern for both of those places where someone has little to offer. And despite how quickly most of us would want to say we passed this test, Solomon actually wants you to sit here. It is in here for the one who is simple, it is in here for the one who wants God's wisdom that we might think a bit longer And what history shows us is that even well-meaning people can often justify a little bit of oppression, a little bit of robbery, a little bit of affliction if it actually works and if it's safe for them because the people you're afflicting or robbing can't really do anything about it. There's a big legal battle, maybe you heard about it a few years ago, where one kind of shady startup businessman bought a uh, drug company that produced a kind of rare life-saving drug. And when he took ownership of the business, he jacked up prices, hundreds of percentages, not because research uh, became more expensive or material became more expensive, but because he knew that this was a life-saving drug that not many people needed. But if you needed it, you had to pay for it. He knew that he could charge exorbitant prices because the people who he was working with had no recourse for anything else. I was talking with my mechanic the other day, and someone had gone into his shop and purchased repairs with a stolen credit card. And so he had to repay when you go and file a claim with your credit card. You get the money back, but generally it comes out of that small business owner's pocket. And he asked what recourse he had, and he said, Well, you could go to court. They said you could go to court to fight it. But the court fees of going to court to fight what he and his small business had to pay was greater than the actual fraud itself. It paid to profit. On a smaller and perhaps more practical level, why is it that we're often okay slacking in our jobs at Walmart or at a fast food restaurant in ways we never would if we worked at a designer store or a higher end restaurant? Could it be that we don't think those customers generally deserve the same treatment, respect, and experience as those who we could guess are probably more well off and influential. That we think, who cares if the burger is sloppily thrown together and the fries dropped on the floor because they're just paying 99 cents. We begin to rob people of what they're due when we consider they are of not, they're of little advantage to ourselves. And people will rob the poor and afflict the voices of those who lack influence for two simple reasons: It is incredibly easy and incredibly profitable. It is something our hearts are prone towards. And here, in a really unique way, in this text, verse 22 and 23 is the only time in the whole portion of the Proverbs we're looking at today where Solomon pulls in the Lord. This is where he brings in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of scripture. He says, you ought not to do this. You ought to be careful that you are not doing this or complicit in it, Because Yahweh himself, the covenant-keeping Lord of Israel, will plead the cause of those who have no voice. He will pay the fees of those who have no welfare. The righteous God of Scripture, who has promised to protect what is good and punish what is evil, will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He will take up pro bono the pleas and the cries of the oppressed, and that same Lord will act as the world's greatest prosecutor Of all who have done evil, and there will be no escape from his justice. What we see in scripture is God is the God who hears the cries of the afflicted. The puritanical commentator, Charles Hodges, says of this that God is the divine pleader in defense of the afflicted. God cares about this more than we can ever imagine. And to think critically about your relationship between your gain, your profit, the poor and the afflicted, is not a leftist agenda. It's a biblical one. But in the same way, to place yourself under God as the supreme authority, the one who will one day come and judge the living and the dead, the one who executes judgment based off your relationship to Christ, who is the judgment of God. That is not a passive way out; is perspective. That is a biblical one. And here, as Proverbs has done all throughout our time in it, it has carved out what is neither right nor left, but that which is gospel-centered to say God cares about this in a unique way, so too should I, as it relates to my own responsibility, and we as Christians should of all people learn to live in this balance because just as Stephen shared last week in Psalm chapter two, we are the ones who have robbed God of his glory. We are ones who are on, at one time on both sides of this afflicted equation. We have robbed, we are in the wrong. We have not given God the glory due his name and yet in our sin, our hearts are enslaved. We do what we want to do. We just do bad things and we're enslaved to it. Right? If we could do what we wanted to, just every preacher could get up on Sunday and say, just don't sin. And we'd say, all right, pastor, we got it. But we do what we want to do and our hearts are enslaved to sin. We are both the offended and the afflicted. But on the cross, Christ the prosecutor became Christ the defendant for all who have faith In him, Jesus came to those who were willingly oppressed in their own sin and by his grace, he frees them. More than that, Jesus then says, those who are robed, this is part of what uh, was read for us earlier in our scripture reading, those who follow Christ often encounter the trials of Christ. They are opposed by the world. But then Jesus says, if you are opposed for my name's sake, I am still the defender. For those suffering for their faith, When whatever country they are in, God will not let that go unpunished. God hears your cry. He sees your tears. And God will punish and vindicate at the end of all things. Therefore, in your desire to make a living for yourself in this world, in all things, we do not view others through the lens of Cain, but instead through the greater Abel the one who gave himself to save his brother, instead of attempting to rob others and take what he could never gain. Be careful, says Solomon. You be careful. You consider today how you gain. For to make it a business, to profit off the poor and the afflicted is to put yourself on the wrong side of God, the divine judge, But what grace where if that is you, there is a way out. There is coming to Christ Jesus and having that record of debt expunged in his blood and then you have the privilege of working for unity in an Ephesians 2 context. Don't rob the vulnerable for God stands as the judge. Bad business model number one. Bad business model number two. Don't partner with those who are angry for it will entrap you. Look at Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So as we continue on in the book of Proverbs, we're going to have a sermon specifically on all that Proverbs, all is probably a gross overstatement, on much of what Proverbs says about anger. But here, we're just gonna zoom in particularly on the nature of the relationship he's calling us to be wise with towards the one who is angry or wrathful. He says, don't go on with them. Make no friendship with them. He's not talking about having these casual relationships. He's talking about this deep-seated, cooperative, relational friendship, a close friendship, maybe even because this is in the context of an otherwise economic text, maybe it's talking about a business partnership with someone who is habitually given to anger. That is someone who, like Cain, uses anger to get what he wants in life. We all get angry for a multitude of reasons. But then when we act in anger, it's often not simply to express our emotion, It's actually to accomplish something with that emotion, isn't it? Don't we see this in the cancel culture right now that is out there on both the left and the right where what happens is each group says, we're angry with them, therefore we will not associate with them and we'll drag them down into the mud. And why does every side do this? And then every side bemoans the other side for doing the things that they hate about the other side? (laughs) They do it because it's wildly effective. (laughs) Because anger works. And that is the danger of this drug. With anger, we can bully people into submission. With anger, we can intimidate to get what we want. With anger, we could subjugate for our own pleasure. With anger, you can get many things with speed you never thought possible. And the truth is, most of us don't need help in getting angry. We're pretty efficient at that on our own. But Solomon here warns of entering into a friendship or a partnership with an angry or wrathful person because as hard as it is to not get angry already, he says when you're in that relationship, you will learn even more how wonderful that anger is. You will learn his ways. That's what Solomon warns against in verse 25. Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself, in a snare. You see, we're about discipleship at Sovereign Hope that's helping each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel because you are being discipled everywhere. This world is discipling you. Your coworkers are discipling you. They are calling you to imitate their life and to follow whatever their version of a God is. And when we are discipled by the world, we see how effective anger is. We're prone to learn its way, to use it in our own life. But here, Solomon tells us that to do so is to ensnare yourself. It's to become trapped, entangled, held captive. There's no freedom. Because just like in a movie, the more you find this little trinket that you promise you're only going to use once, you begin to use again and again and again. And again, and pretty soon, if you want to accomplish anything, it's just a greater act of anger, a greater act of manipulation, a greater need for control. And you, if you live that way, inevitably find yourself back under the judgment of Yahweh we just saw in verse 23. You see, all you have to do in today's culture is open up a website, go to a newspaper, open up a Christian blog, And you'll find stories of businessmen and churches who have created cultures of anger and domineering. And how that happened is an important question. It happened because we find this stunning thing where we think, well, if someone's really angry, it's going to show up and ruin their business. But what everyone on all of those boards, secular or sacred, realized is that anger actually sometimes helps the bottom line, it gets things done. And when we see that anger is profitable, we become less and less offended by it and we become more and more prone to practice it. And so here for the sake of your soul, Psalm says, do not go into this partnership. Flee from it. Assess your friendships. Assess your business relationships and realize that though there might be freedom because it's good to be friends with a guy who's got a hot tweet finger it might enslave your soul and cause damage far beyond your imagination can think. That's what imaginations do, right? Imaginations think. Bad business model number two. Go into a deep partnership with an angry man because it will ruin you. Next, Solomon brings back something which might be a little odd to us today. We actually encountered this and had a sermon on it back in Proverbs chapter six. And that's this. Don't be foolish with your money for it could ruin you. Don't be foolish with your money, for it could ruin you. Here we see this third bad business model, Proverbs 22, 26 through 27. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? And so throughout the Old Testament law, we actually see that that the law legislates generosity. God's people are to be generous, to take care of those who are in need in their own community. We see the same principles applied lavishly in the New Testament based off the generosity of Jesus Christ. And so we read texts like this, it's not trying to curb generosity or to commend selfishness. In fact, it's not even curbing the practice of lending, which is also spoken to in the Levitical law. Instead, what Solomon is warning of is those who either give a loan or pledge to be collateral on a loan when that action is quite unwise because of the person or the opportunity being offered. In the modern context, it could look like co-signing a loan with your child who has a track record of not paying their bills, not driving safely. You wanna be a good parent, so you sign it, but if you don't have what it takes to cover the cost of the car, He says, it's foolish to do that. Why would you pledge something you cannot pay? Or maybe you see your neighbor, your coworker, they come up to you for the fifth time that year with their wonderful new idea for the startup that's better than the last one you funded. And they say, hey, for this amount of money, you can get in on the ground floor of this thing. And you look and you you try to convince yourself that maybe this is the one, maybe this is Steve Jobs. But why would you make a pledge and risk it if you do not have what you could pay? And we do this perhaps for two reasons. The first is that we want to look more generous or more well off than we will, really are for the sake of gaining social capital. Look at this guy. He's got disposable income. He's so generous. He loves small businesses, they are such good parents. But at the end, you lose any leverage you have to actually be generous, to be supportive, and to contribute. Or you do it because the loan might be risky but you might be able to turn a quick buck off of it. If this works, you might get that little bit of interest back. You might be able to take advantage of both his business situation and his desperation and say, this might be profitable for the both of us. But if it's a foolish prospect, not only do you lose your interest, but you lose the money that you put into it. And Solomon here warns that to pledge yourself to someone or something that is foolish is to tie yourself to something which might cost you your own bed. You have nothing left. He's not after people who are stingy. We'll talk about that more next week. But he is saying that the appearance of wealth and the interest of money aren't worth the potential financial ruin that comes when you make unwise financial commitments. It's easy to pledge something, and it's often financially and culturally advantageous for us to do so, but it's a lot harder to pay. And someone here wants you to consider that tension. So now we've seen his first three warnings. Don't rob the, the poor. Don't go into business with someone who's angry. Don't make a foolish financial obligation. And these generally make sense to us. The last one, maybe we're like, I could, I could kind of see a world where that's how we do business. Now we've got bankers and they do that. But now we get into this wonderfully practical one. Proverbs 22, verse 28. Why don't you read this with me? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Go in peace. Earlier this summer, a Belgic farmer was doing whatever Belgic farmers do in Belgium, and he uh, was in his field and he moved aside this stone so that his tractor could get by it, and unbeknownst to him, he sparked an international incident because that stone he casually threw aside was actually a historic legal landmark of the border between France and Belgium. And in his carelessness, he had invaded eight feet of France, and claimed 7.5 feet for the country of Belgium. Treaties were violated. And you know what happened? Both countries laughed. And they're like, hey farmer, could you put the stone back? And that was it. We have very little context in our world today of business practices that are rooted in landmarks. Maybe you could think, maybe you're in the, the Bitteret, or you're on the more agricultural land up north and you think, well, I shouldn't move my fence onto my neighbor's property. But what is it after here when even in the actual occurrence of a landmark being moved in France, an international war being potentially threatened, we laugh it off. What's at the heart of what is going on here? Well, I actually think this verse is the pivot on which our text hinges today. Because when Solomon talks about landmarks, he's calling back to God's covenant with Israel, the covenant God gave to their fathers. He's talking about little boundary markers of property in the kingdom of Israel. And he warns that if you wanna try to nudge your land to be a little bigger and your neighbor's land to be a little smaller, but these boundary markers were not just arbitrary. It wasn't like dividing up a sub-development and seeing who gets what. These boundary markers were given to Israel by God himself. Part of what God did when he brought his people out of Egypt and into the promised land is he divided the land and gave it to be distributed among the tribes. How beautiful was this? So beautiful that Moses, channeling his inner pop star, included this moment in a song. We don't sing about our mortgage statements, but look at what Moses sings about in Deuteronomy 32, verses seven through eight. Remember the days of old, Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elder, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. And so here's Moses just like spitting some title love on us here. He's saying, look at what God has given you. Look at this wonderful time where you had no land and God gave you the exact land that you needed. It was God's inheritance, God's gift, God's providence for each of these communities to have that specific land as God saw fit. And from that land, they were to labor. From that land, they were to trust all of God's covenant promises that He would bring fruit in season and out of season, that He would protect them, that He would care for them, that they would be His people and He would be their God. So, behind the moving of a landmark is not just an attempt to gain more at cost to your neighbor, it's actually an intentional distrust in God's gracious gift to each individual. It says to God, I don't trust your providence and I'm going to take what I can when I want it. And this is Solomon's fourth method for unprofitable gain. Don't try and take what only God can give. Behind each of these prohibitions is an active distrust. A distrust that God rewards those who obediently live their life in submission to him a distrust that the God who had brought them out of slavery is actually the God that can give them the good life on land that might look different or bigger or smaller or more rocky than your neighbors. You see, this passage begins with a reminder of the covenant-keeping God of the Bible who will defend the cause of the afflicted. It's meant to curb our desire for gain. And here it ends with a throwback to a God who in keeping his covenant to deliver his people from slavery gave them exactly what they needed to serve God well. How can we use our labor to serve people instead of harm them? How can we say no to the effective and contagious rewards of anger? How can we be wise and say no to foolish opportunities by trusting in God with everything we produce, that we do not have to sin to gain what God freely gives in grace, that if we entrust ourselves to faithfully working in submission to the God who takes care of his people, that we can say no to sin, because we trust in the God of the covenant. So what do we do with this? Do we just kind of throw our hands up and say, like take this fatalistic view of work where, ah, whatever gain I gain, whatever I do, I do. God's gonna control the output. Do we become kind of apathetic? What does it matter that I do? Well, no. Because immediately after these verses, which are getting at this trust in Yahweh, this reliance on his provision, look at where he lands the plane in Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And so this is Solomon's final point today. This is the good news of faithful gain. In contrast to dubious business procedures and angry acts to try and get what only God can promise, here he calls us to the good news of gain in faithful work. We are to work skillfully and to trust God to do with our work whatever he will. We trust that God will reward those who work diligently in all of the work that God has given to them. Instead of trying to worry about a specific outcome like Cain did, We get to joyfully and skillfully turn into our labor like Abel and trust that whatever we earn is already God's and that God is the one who provides to us all things. The good news of faithful gain is that we work well and trust God with our lives. We punch in and we punch out and know that God is taking care of us. We can be free from the paranoia of production and this constant demand to get, to earn, to make, to find a way for yourself. And instead, you trust in God for your joy and you work heartily, skillfully, wisely as a response. Asked one of our elders who's been in business for a long time, what are some things he's learned that he could tell I said to your proverbial 22 year old self. And the first thing he said is we often prone to misuse our time. We have this faux sense of either urgency or fear that drives what we do. And maybe you can relate to this because I've experienced all of these probably just this morning. And one is that when you are at leisure, when you're at rest, You feel like your time is wasted and you need to be doing something, and so you can't rest. But then when you're at work, you feel weary and all you want to do is rest, but you can't because you're at work. And what this does is it produces, on one hand, a culture of workaholics trying to purchase their own joy, and on another hand, a culture of sluggards hoping to stumble into it at no cost to themselves. And while Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says there's time for work and rest, here Solomon is saying, now we're talking about the time to work, but here is work finally with peace. Here is work free from the burdens of Cain. Here is work that trusts in God and turns to labor with skill. We work and trust that God will do with our work exactly what he wants to do with it. And here Solomon promises in what seems crazy that those who work skillfully, God himself will bring them to stand before kings. The same God who hears the voice of the oppressed is the same God who somehow elevates those who skillfully and reliably work. When we stop worshiping our work as God and stop trying to buy with our work what only Christ's redemption can buy, we can actually turn and trust that God will reward our labors in his way. We see this in the Bible with men like Joseph and Daniel, two men who worked faithfully in unfaithful climates and yet God used them and brought them literally before kings. We see this in Christian history with men like Johann Sebastian Bach. Besides being one of the greatest musical minds and composers, Bach was a Christian and he understood the freedom that comes from working in light of this passage. And he shares a little bit when he says this. So bear in mind, this is Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm not a big classical music guy, but I know Bach, okay? And so like, we're, t- we're not talking about like this, my, I don't know, Johnny could throw out a name, be like that sounds Dutch or something, that's cool. But we know this guy, right? This is Johann Sebastian Bach. And even if we don't know what he did, we're like, we know Johann Sebastian Bach, we're, we're supposed to act like we know him. And this is what he says. I worked hard. Anyone who works as hard as I did can achieve the same results. The final aim and reason of all music is nothing other than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the Spirit. Here's this profound, like, can you be the next Johann Sebastian Bach? Maybe, probably not. Don't leave here thinking that. And yet we see, see this wonderful paradigm here. That is that our world tells us we should work hard and skillfully only when we know exactly what it will earn. If I'm making $15 an hour, maybe. If I'm making $45 an hour, now now we're talking. Now I'll work skillfully. But here, what Bach is modeling is a biblical conviction that we should work hard and skillfully, not when we know what we will earn, but when we know who it will please. And here it pleases the King of Kings. Here it pleases the Lord who made us to work and set us in a garden to keep it and to maintain it. Here we work for the God who has called people to himself in Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. Here we work knowing that one day we will get set in the new heavenly garden and we will work without hard ground, without thorns or thistles, exactly how God designed it. Look at how Paul ties these things together in Colossians 3, in two passages. And I want you to pay attention to the distinctions that are in here because it's subtle, but it's important. Colossians three seventeen. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now let's look at verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So did you see what he says there? In verse 17, he says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when you show up to work, your name tag says Jesus. How they see you is how they see Jesus. How you work is how they see Jesus work. How you love is how they see Jesus' love. How you interact with your customers is how they imagine Jesus to interact with your customers. When you go to work, you do so with the name of Jesus. But then in verse 23, it says, do everything as if... For the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to work for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are these two powerful comprehensive pictures meaning that you are to both work as the Lord and for the Lord in every aspect of your lives. And we're living in this crazy cultural moment right now, whether we want to or not. And that is where we see that the entire climate around work is is changing, Not only is everyone kind of needing workers in our city, you pass around, there are signs asking for people to come back to work, to exercise what God has given us of working with our hands and earning our bread and fulfilling the cultural mandate. But even before the pandemic, the labor force in the city of Missoula was weird. And that's that no one moves to Missoula to work. People move to Missoula to play. People move here and work here so that they could make what they need to to punch their time cards and make it up to snowball before the lifts close or to hit the river before the sun sets. And what that means is that we have robbed our work of worship. Passages like this seem so foreign to us because there's no purpose in working skillfully. We don't care if we get to stand before the king as long as we get to maybe fish for some trout But God here brings peace and rest and privilege where we as Christians in this cultural moment in our city ought to respond to the challenge and say, look at me and see Jesus. Jesus who took on the labor of taking the form of a servant and humbling himself and being put on a cross. Jesus who worked to obey God perfectly. Jesus who worked to redeem people who were far from him. Jesus who worked to win us back to the father. And we get to do it skillfully. Wonderfully, And the truth is, you might not be Johann Sebastian Bach. You might turn to your work skillfully with all that God has given to you and the only person who says good job is your wife when you go home at night. And yet the promise of this is that because we have been brought back to God through Jesus Christ, that we stand unashamed with our work before the King of Kings. You will stand before the Lord for both praise and chastisement, not before obscure men. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus is talking a lot about how we present in public. And three times in Matthew six, he says, the Lord who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What does the Lord who sees what is done in secret see in your work? When do texts, as I was writing a sermon, which is part of my work, I had to wrestle with this text. It was beautiful outside. I was sweating while writing this and I'm just like, am I being skillful? Am I honoring the Lord with this and trusting him with whatever comes? Do you have that awareness? Because the world looks at work and they hope that someday it will pay off to give them what they want. And just like Cain, everyone who thinks that their work can grant them their satisfaction and peace of those around them will find themselves disheartened and crushed in the end but for those who come to God in Jesus Christ, who God gives the kingdom of the talents and is set back to work, not just in the work of sharing the gospel with others, but in the work of showing the gospel with our lives. Look at the reward which Jesus himself promises in Matthew 25. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Everyone works for the hope of gain, but only the Christian works with the promise of it. Our work pleases God because it's Jesus's work that justifies us. And now we get to turn joyfully without fear to work skillfully, heartily, and zealously for his glory. If you want that relief, Come to Jesus, the rat race of trying to gain peace and joy that only Jesus gives will eat you alive. But grace gives us all of that in Jesus so that we can work with joy. So this week, consciously, regardless of where you work or what you do, pray that God might grant this text to your heart, that you can for a moment work for the Lord and not for men. You see, there's this wonderful cost-benefit analysis Solomon wants to give us here. As the teacher, he holds up these things. Is it worth it to rob the poor, to partner with the angry and to make a foolish loan? And he wants you to see it's not. It's not worth it. But here he then calls us to see, is it worth it to skillfully and heartily labor with your head down trusting in the Lord? It is. It's wonderfully worth it. So let's go this week into our city, into our jobs and let's rely on the God who has set our boundaries in Jesus Christ and work for his glory so that others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray. Um, We spend two hours on a Sunday morning together, maybe another two hours at community group, maybe another hour in discipleship or having a barbecue tonight with some friends from church, but we spend 40 hours a week or more in the workplace. Lord, help us to see where that intersects with the gospel of grace. Help us to see that as a place where we trust in you. We don't believe the lies of culture that work is meant to purchase for us an American dream. But instead, Christ has purchased us for the purpose of working for his glory. Works which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let us walk skillfully. Let us walk heartily. Let us walk humbly. And let us do so so that we might see your immense provision in the gospel and others might see the immense privilege of serving a God like you.